Romans chapter 6, going to look at a few verses for our introduction, and I'm going to talk to you today about victory over sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 1 says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death that, like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Victory over sin. This chapter, by the way, should be presented to all people who understand, biblically understand, that we're saved by grace, but whose behavior seems to indicate that that understanding is a bit short of all the Bible has to say about grace. There was an Irish priest traveling to New York, coming through Connecticut, and he was speeding, and the state trooper caught him on his radar, got the lights going, started to follow the car, a little bit of motion in the car besides. Finally, the priest stopped, pulled over, trooper got out and he said, you know, Father, do you realize that you were speeding? And he, he, he didn't know. But as the trooper was getting closer in the window, he smelt wine. And he said, Father, have you been drinking? And the priest said, just water. <laughs> then he spied a bottle of wine. The cop, trooper, he said, if that's the case, Father, why do I see that bottle of wine? He said, good Lord. He's done it again. <laughs> I guess you may have to be Irish to appreciate the humor that, uh, or be at an Irish funeral. But we have a way of rationalizing what the Bible calls sin. And that little anecdote there kind of proves the point. God did it. It's interesting when you research, and I'm going to bring this to you, as far back as the 50s, 1950s, the years when I was born, there was a psychologist who's still alive by the name of Stanton Samenow, along with a psychiatrist by the name of Samuel Yokelson. And they set out to prove that it's the environment that causes people to commit crimes. You know, not just the neighborhood perhaps, but the family you're in and all of this. It's your environment that taints the human mind or soul, causes them to commit crimes, and so on. So they studied 250 inmates for 17 years. But what happened was, contrary to the conclusion that they thought they would come up with, in other words, the environment made them what they are. You've heard the expression, nature versus nurture. These people here committed crimes. Some of them were bad, horrible crimes, weren't nurtured, and so on. What they actually discovered was that all of these inmates, and then we expanded to, I will expand it, like the Bible does to the whole world, that in the end, the truth was that they had made bad moral choices. And so, as they discovered and then put into the book, The Criminal Personality, they concluded that, quote, conversion of the wrongdoer to do a more responsible lifestyle is the answer, the conversion, they didn't talk about Christ, Conversion them, converting them to the moral standards that we all live by. Harvard professors James Wilson and Richard Hernstein came to similar conclusions in their book, Crime and Human Nature, 
They determined that the cause of crime was a lack of proper moral training among young people. Now listen, among young people during the morally formative years, particular ages one to six. And so, you know, I say here, you know, parents, bring your children to church because you're going to regret it, not only in temporary terms, but you're going to regret it in eternal terms. And they will regret it. Train up a child in the way that he or she shall go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. And this is the time now to teach the children. In any case, when secular psychiatrists and psychologists can come to close to a conclusion that the Bible makes, that it's not necessarily your environment, and it's not necessarily how you were nurtured, it's our nature. We're sinners by birth, we're sinners by choice. And this is what I want to talk to you about today. Sin. I remember when I first heard the word coming to a Bible preaching church, it seemed odd, funny odd. It just didn't seem like a word that I ever used myself or heard anybody else use, except in some type of joke or derogatory term. I never heard anybody talk about it except when I came to church, and then I've been talking and reading about it ever since. Sin. Precisely what is sin? Well, we read in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, Whosoever commits sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. There is, of course, in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, the written example of the Ten Commandments. But long before that, the laws of God existed. And we know right from wrong, not just from the book, which is the Bible, or even in other religions where they correctly name what is right and what is wrong, such as murder, for an example. But we have something called conscience. Con means with, science means knowledge. With knowledge. I knew the things I was doing before Christ found me, before Christ saved me. I knew they were wrong. And you know today, if you're doing what's wrong in the sight of the Lord, you know it. Now, I may speak to you later, and you may give me all these reasons why your environment, your circumstances, and all these things had an effect, and you're not responsible. But let me tell you something right now. You may say that, but you're wrong. You're making bad moral choices. And this is not the hour of history to be making bad moral choices. Sin is the transgression of the law. You could make an argument if you want intellectually, and some will believe it, But your conscience keeps telling you, this is wrong. This is wrong. Someone, a little girl, it was, who was asked, what was conscience? And she described it as a kind of like a triangle that was spinning in the mind, just poking you and telling you that this is wrong. The problem being, though, that it can spin so long that the edges are taken off and you no longer know what's wrong and know what's right. It's called a seared conscience. Now you're justifying what you're doing. And God says it's wrong. That, my friend, is a bad place to be, if you're there today, with a seared conscience, a conscience that no longer can sense or know what is right and what is wrong, justifying what God says that he would punish. That's not a place where you want to be. Sin, the Bible says, is the violation of God's laws. Augustine, in his confessions, he wrote these words, He said, sin comes when we take a perfectly natural desire or longing or ambition and try desperately to fulfill it without God. Not only is it sin, it is a perverse distortion of the image of the creator in us. All these good things and all our security are rightly found only and completely in him. 
The Bible says, let us create man in our image. And he gave us natural desires. Not everything. Murder is not a natural desire. Sexuality, we talk about that much. We think lust and sexuality are always the only two that go together, and it's not. You can have a lust for money, uh, other things. And they're natural desires, and they're things that we need. But when they're not in the image of the Creator and the way He designed them, then it becomes sin. And I'll read to you in a little bit that God says through the prophet Ezekiel, the soul that sins, it will die. You can be sure of this. The soul that sins, it will die. So Augustine, he pictures something that I think is true. I think I could say it was true in my case, and I think it's true in your case as well. When it comes to sin, Augustine wrote these words. Lord, make me good, but not yet. Lord, make me good, but not entirely. Then finally he says, you come to the place when you're following Christ, Lord, make me good. There's no more conditions. You come to Christ, this may be the average case, I don't know, I think it was my case, Lord, make me righteous, but there's a certain amount of things I don't want God to touch. I don't want him to change this in me, because I don't want to change that. And look, if sin wasn't pleasurable, we wouldn't do it. But it is. And then the Lord, if he's working on your heart, you realize what you're doing is wrong. This is wrong, this behavior is wrong, this attitude is wrong. And I think I'll talk to you in a moment about the difference between how we accent monumental wrongs, such as murder, the Sixth Commandment, and also how we accent adultery and, and so on, sexual sins. But Alexander McLaren, the great preacher, he said that most of our sins comes from trifles, everyday little things, these little things that we do over and over and over again. We read in Galatians that the works of the flesh are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lascivious, idolatry, witchcraft, and all murder, all these things, but it also talks about gossip. In the first chapter of Romans, it talks about things that we trifle with. And yet, the Bible says, here in the beginning of Romans, chapter one, it says that those that do such things will be judged by God, yet we trifle with it. We justify our temper by saying it's an Irish temper. Or the priest in my story, it's a made up story, justifies his drinking because he's in the pastorate somewhere with a clerical collar. Or maybe he justifies his drinking because he's Irish. See, we trifle with sin. And we say, as Augustine said, Lord, make me good, but not yet. Lord, make me good, but not entirely. I don't want you to touch my temper. I don't want you to touch my gossip. I don't want you to touch the area that I'm now justifying that I knew once was wrong. And so we read the Apostle Paul And he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21, Unless when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall bewail many which have sinned already, and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. He says, I'm concerned that when I come, that I'll have to speak to you a message that I don't want to have to speak to you, because you haven't repented. Look at the book of the Revelation. Seven churches that profess Jesus, and five of them are condemned, with one exception. These words, except ye repent. Repent, as I've told you, and you know, means to turn. It means to change your thinking. It means to line up your thinking with God's words in the Bible. And then the behavior, of course, once you change your thinking, you change your direction, then you start to line up your life with the Bible. It's a pretty simple concept. Not easy to perform, naturally, but it's a simple concept. And that's what God demands. Command and demand is the same thing. Those of you, there's plenty of you here, been in the military. Your superior officer or whoever is over you gives you an order. That's not a suggestion. You're going to do it. 
or else. And we have this type of thing in the Bible. Two paths, left and right. One leads to hell, one leads to heaven. Choose this day whom you will serve. Serve the Lord, the Creator, the one true God, or serve the gods of the nations. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The head of the house made a decision for everybody in the house. We used to have it as a door knocker on our door. I don't think it's there anymore, but if you knocked on our door, that's the verse you would read. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But that does not mean that the father or the mother is responsible for all the behavior of the children as they get older. You see, it's not nurture. It's our nature to violate God. And that nature must be changed. So Jesus said, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. Because the nature that you have is violating God. And I'll suggest to you that if you begin combing through the trifles of life, your life, I meant, the things you say and think about or you justify or you're saying to God, but not in the same words as Augustine, change me, God, but not entirely. Let me hold these few things for myself. And maybe you lean on your ethnicity or you lean on your personality or you say things like, that's just the way I am. And God says, change, because that's not the way you're supposed to be. In James chapter 5 at verse 15 Listen to this, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he hath committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. So we see sin needs to be forgiven. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. He that committed sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And the context is on sin. The Son of God was made known to the world in public. He was made known to destroy the works of sin inspired by this spiritual, very real spiritual being called Satan. Verse 9, same chapter, 1 John 3. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. For his seed, God's seed, Holy Spirit, remains in him and he cannot sin because he's born of God. Now that doesn't mean that we are perfect it just means that since the heart is changed and set in a different direction, we no longer, number one, desire to do the things we used to do, including the trifles. Not just adultery, not just stealing and murder and dishonoring your parents and blaspheming God's name and so on and so forth, but in the trifles. Let me give you an example of something that's been on my mind for a couple of days. There's a woman on social media whom I do not know. But her handle is Christian, and there's many people out there, you know, Christian, conservative, and all this stuff. Of which, again, I don't take much seriously. Anyway, she's rather, let me use this word, truculent individual. Kind of obnoxious. But she loves that grace, and she quotes from J.I. Packer, and she quotes from these famous Calvinists. Not that I have anything against these people. I got their books in my library. But she likes to, in other words, she likes to do things with trifles. She's been rude with me. I recently just blocked her. I said, I've had enough of this. You can't even have a conversation, and she's on the right. Be careful, my friends, of people on the political right, because they may not be right with God. And you need to be right with God before you're on anybody's side. Anyway, they love the word grace. That's actually her handle, grace something or other. But neglect what it says in the sixth chapter of Romans, the eighth chapter of Romans, and other places. In the book of Titus, it says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying worldliness and ungodly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously in this present world. That's what real grace teaches you. It's a constant striving for Romans 8.29, which I mentioned earlier, 
that says that we have been foreordained or predestined to be conformed into the image of Christ, male and female, conformed into the image of Christ, which means we no longer say to God, make me righteous, but not yet. Make me righteous, but not completely. When you have come to the understanding I mentioned before during the song service, that when we sing these words, we must understand what we're singing. You're all I've ever wanted. You're all I've ever needed. And make sure that it's true. And when it is, then you say, God, change me. Amen. Just change me. And let me be 100% for you. Without excusing the things that we do. And again, going through this saying, oh, that's just the way I am. Well, you provoke me in all this. It's not the environment as these psychologists and psychiatrists, not how they did write about, they're still writing about it, some of them. And they're saying, no, it's not the environment. It's the nature of man. And guess what? We already had that right here in the Bible. Amen. So sin, what is it? Susanna Wesley was the mother of John and Charles Wesley. She had many, many children, quite a few. They say that when her children were acting up, she would just throw her apron over her head and just begin to pray. <laughs> what else can you do? If you've had any number of children, you know. She brought her children up in the Lord, and she defined sin to her son John, the head and founder of the Methodist Church. She said this, If you would judge of the lawfulness or the unlawfulness of pleasure, then take this simple rule. Listen. Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, and takes off the relish of spiritual things, that to you is sin. She mentions reason. She mentions conscience, the sense of God, the wanting relish, the wanting for spiritual things is sin. I think it's a very good colloquial explanation of what the Bible says. What is it that's leading you away from God? Or are you in the position today where you are not being deceived by somebody on the television or the radio or books you're reading, but you're deceiving yourself? Because you're justifying what this book says is wrong, what God says is wrong. But you have an excuse. Yet again, in the first chapter of Romans, the Apostle Paul will explain that these people, people in general, are without excuse. Again, now let me say this again. You may say something to me that satisfies me. But your life is not designed to satisfy me. Your life is designed to satisfy God. I may give you a pass. I may say, yeah, I kind of understand, yeah. But God, who cannot do anything unrighteous, will not give you a pass. And you better understand that. We agree here and across the world, the events that we're seeing are leading us to more and more reasonable conclusion based on what we read in the Bible. The coming of Christ is very clear. And we shall give an account to him here in Princetown, just few days ago, young man, 19 years old, shot his mother, shot her boyfriend, 16, 61 years old. He didn't just shoot them, though. He shot them again and again and again and again with a 30 out 6 If you've ever shot a gun, you know that's a big round. He just kept, like the Menendez brothers back in the 70s, he just kept shooting them and shooting them. You have to reload. It only carries so many in the uh, magazine or the clip, just shooting them and left them there for days. Never reported it. And we're seeing this. I mean, there's four students in Ohio hacked to death in their sleep. And we don't know all these reasons of why people are doing what we're doing, except the Bible calls it sin. Sin has tainted our environments, tainted the waters, tainted the air. It's tainted creation. And we're waiting and expecting the arrival of Jesus Christ. So I say to you, 
Let's not be looking out the window at somebody else or somebody else's church because that don't concern me. The churches around me are not under my purview. Here I'm the pastor. And I say to you that it's time that we set our sights on the Lord in a way, as Augustine once again said, don't say, Lord, make me righteous, but not entirely. Make me righteous, but not yet. Lord, make me righteous. Amen. By the way, uh, one of my prayers of, of the many I pray over and over again, and one thing that I always think, there's never been a time in my life that I have made a decision to go deeper and further with Christ that I regretted it. I can also say there hasn't been a time when I've decided to go deeper and further with Christ that I haven't been opposed by spiritual beings inside flesh and blood. But that's just the way it goes, my friend. You want to challenge someone to a fight? They're going to hit back. Okay, so that's just the way it goes. But I've never regretted it, and you won't regret it either. Will it be difficult? Yes. So mark that down. It's not going to be easy. Amen. You're fighting against yourself, which is something I want to bring to you at the end of this message. You're fighting against yourself. You're not fighting against me. Satan, well, yes, yes, we're fighting against him. But primarily, you're fighting against yourself. And why is sin so terrible then? In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, Behold, all souls are mine, whether they're black or white or whatever, ethnicity or color. God says they're all mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sins, it shall die. Ezekiel 18, verse 20. The soul that sins, it shall die. The Son shall not bear the iniquity of the Father. Neither shall the Father bear the iniquity of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. That's what thousands of years later... Psychologists and psychiatrists, these are Yale-educated, Harvard-educated people, came to the conclusion that it wasn't the environment after all. Is you made a bad moral choice, and that's exactly what the Bible says. I can't be blamed for the sins of my children, but then again, they can't be blamed for mine. Every single soul is an individual before God. Everyone is an individual. You know what? We have five children, as you know. You could have a million children, which is probably not a good idea for your health. But you could have a million children, and they're all different. Same father, same mother, same home. And one child will say, hey, my parents were a blessing. The other child will say, my parents were a curse. Same situation. Because everyone makes their own moral choice. My friends, make the right choice. You're not going to be giving an answer to me at the end of your life. You're going to be giving an answer to God. The soul that sins, it will die. Not just go to the grave. We all go to the grave. An eternal death. A death so horrible that it's almost beyond our ability to think about it. At least it's beyond my ability to think about it for too long. But I always keep it in the front of my mind. We read in Romans 6, chapter 23, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In a few weeks, we'll have Christmas. I have never received a gift, particularly at Christmas, birthdays, Father's Day, whatever, and then said to somebody, you know, my children, my wife, or my mother, my father, whatever, how much can I pay you for this? And to say to mom and dad and husband and wife and children or whoever it is that you received the gift from, I insist to pay for this. It's an insult. And you break the heart of the one who loves you. And yet there's some who have a misunderstanding that somehow we'll do something to God to make this up. And God says, there's no way you can make it up. I'm giving you the gift of everlasting life. 
I paid the price. Tetelestai, Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. I've paid the price. I've paid the penalty. That, my friends, is good news. But when it comes to hell, Jesus said these words in Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out. This is metaphoric. But you're getting the point that this sin is so horrible that Jesus would use this metaphor. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Matthew 5, verse 30. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Now, Jesus said the eye and the hand. James talks about the tongue. And so I'll say to you today, after so many decades of experience, if you say, oh, pastor, it's my tongue that gets me in trouble, I will cut it off for you. Because the tongue is the most troublesome. The eye, of course, what we see, we teach the little children in our churches, be careful, little eyes, what you see. <laughs> Just a little light moment here. And this happened this morning. I didn't know about this man. I just happened in my news feed. I happened to see hundreds of people in Australia. Then I learned that he's been doing this all around the world. This one photographer gets hundreds of people to pose nude, totally nude, on a beach somewhere to protest against skin cancer. Now think of the logic of this. But when I saw the picture, and at the end of the line was people who had to be in their 80s because everything was just sagging. <laughs> And as soon as I saw it, I said to myself, I can never unsee this. I can never unsee these octogenarian people standing naked. They're butt naked. I mean, just see the butt. And I'm saying, you're protesting skin cancer and you're naked in front of the sun. Well, that's how man thinks. Somewhere some years ago, many years ago now, there was a woman in California, Carol Fuller was her name, and she was robbed unfortunately broke into their home, her home, and then the uh, robbers didn't do anything to her, but they locked her in the closet and they left. No one ever found her. I mean, right away didn't find her until she died in the closet. But the description was this, that when they found her body, her fingers were all cut up trying to claw her way out of the closet. Now that's sad, but it paints a picture for us of Dante's words, abandon all hope, ye that enter here. You try to claw your way out of that place that Jesus told us about, hell, and you cannot get out ever. And what put you there? It wasn't your father. It wasn't your mother. It wasn't the neighborhood you grew up in. It wasn't bad luck. It was your moral choices. Christ came to give us a gift. Remember, there's no way to pay for it. We say, people say, that's okay. I'm going to work it out myself. And God says, there is no other way. I am the way. I am the truth. There is no other way. Amen. You'll be trying to claw your way out of that place called hell because you made the choice to disbelieve and disobey God. And there'll be no way out. When Jesus comes, John 3, 17, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. That would have been easy. But that the world through him might be saved. Saved from that. And so God is good. And we want to be able to make the choices that would please God. Let me say it again a little differently. Live your life to please one person, God. Live your life to please God. Here's the beauty of it. If you're with other believers, if you're in a marriage where there's two believers, 
your behavior pleasing God, ordinarily at least, will please your spouse. And then we can go from there. If you're in a church that wants to please God, it'll please the people. But that's a bonus. But if you narrow down who you're trying to please to just pleasing God, you're in very good company with the prophets and the apostles and Jesus Christ himself. Very good company. And so the sermon title is Victory Over Sin. How do you get victory over sin? I want to just read something to you that I read some years ago. Some of you are old enough to remember here in the state of New York. Our senator for many years was Daniel Patrick Moynihan, a Democrat. And in this political climate, it may be said, as it was once said of Jesus, can anything good come out of the Democratic Party? That's how we judge. By the way, it's a violation of logic, but I won't go into that. Here's a group of people, Democrats. Here's a group of people, Republicans. They're all good, they're all bad. But they look at it the other way. They're all bad, we're all good. You cannot judge one individual because they belong into a group. Anyway, Senator Moynihan wrote an essay, and this was the title, Defining Deviancy Down. And Charles Krauthammer, who was a psychiatrist and a political commentator, he wrote for many years for the Washington Post and won the Pulitzer Prize. He wrote these words on Moynihan's essay, Defining Deviancy Down. Krauthammer wrote these words. Moynihan's powerful point is that with the moral deregulation of the 60s, 1960s, my generation, we have had an explosion of deviancy in family life, keeping in mind this is another psychiatrist writing. An explosion of deviancy in family life, criminal behavior, and public displays of psychosis. And we have dealt with it in the only way possible by redefining deviancy down so as to explain away and make normal what a more civilized, ordered, and healthy society long ago would have labeled and long ago did label deviant. Krauthammer. Moynihan. Krauthammer, well, he wrote for the Washington Post. Enough said. Pulitzer Prize winning psychiatrist. Moynihan was a Democrat. And they talked about, this is deviant. That's really exactly what the Bible says. Read the book of Deuteronomy. And you'll know what the nations did before Israel got there. Not only sex outside of marriage, but sex with animals and all types of things. The exact things that we're seeing right now in our country and around the world. And Jesus said that as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. There was more and more violence. This week, the 10th anniversary, I think it was 10th anniversary of Sandy Hook, shooting kindergartners. If that's not deviant, what is? A man that shoots his mother and his boyfriend, how many times? It's deviant. Not just a murder, it's deviant. Drag queens going in to pre-Ks? And the question should be not... Why are school boards inviting them? The question should be, why do the drag queens want to be there? Yeah. And let me go backward for a moment and talk to you parents. Why aren't you in church? Why aren't you bringing your children to teach them the word of God? Because if you don't, as our elders said during prayer, it's going to be a huge regret. But not only a huge regret for you and your children because they may not make it in life or they wind up in a prison or something like that or on drugs, which they may anyway. Cain killed Abel. But they both had the same parents, Adam and Eve, and they lived in the absolute perfect, perfect world. It was perfect. It's nature, sin nature. We have to not 
dumbed down deviancy, but call it what it is, the wages of sin is an eternal death. And we all have sin in us. And we all like to say, your sin is bad and you better change. But when we come back the other way and say, what about your sin? We rationalize it. But let me tell you, my friend, stop rationalizing your sin. Here's three pastors sitting in a room at a pastor's seminar. I've been to them. They're in the room and they decide, the three of them, you know, let's talk about our secret sins. So the one pastor, he says, I have to admit I love gambling. Every time I go past the casino, I've got to go in and cha-ching, cha-ching, let the machines ring. And the second pastor said, well, um, I have a problem too. And he talked about his particular sin at length. When it was time for the third pastor to go, he said, well, I have the sin of gossip. And boy, I can't wait to get out of this room. <laughs> oh, you say, my sin is bad. How about yours? Look in the mirror, my friend, and look for a long, long time. See, I've told you this, and I say this because of my confidence in God, not my confidence in me. I say this to you that I am supernaturally indifferent. I enjoy a supernatural indifference to what people think about me. As long as my conscience is clear and I stick with the text of the book and live accordingly, not perfectly, but give God all my all, then I'm indifferent. I don't like that, Pastor. Well, tell it to somebody who really enjoys hearing that because I don't care. That's a good feeling. When you can walk clean before the Lord. I did not say perfectly. I was accused once by some board members, not my present board members, of saying, we've heard you say from the pulpit that you're perfect. I said, where'd you get that from? Did I ever say I was perfect? I never did. I never will. That's a lie. But what I did say then, I'm saying now, I'm saying my conscience is clear. If I do something wrong, and I had an incident, I'll give it to you. A friend of mine and his wife, we work out in the gym together. At least we did years ago. And she was walking by and I grabbed her by the arm. And it was just going to be like, hey, you're going to walk right by me and not say hi? So she went like this, and she said, don't touch me. And I really felt bad, because I'm just, you know, just being friendly. And I felt bad enough that I made a call to him a couple hours later. I said, listen, I just want you to tell your wife. I didn't mean anything by that. I said, oh, don't worry. She's a little touchy. And I said, no, I really, I just want you to know I didn't intend anything there just to be friendly. And then everything worked out. That's me. You cannot go around doing what's wrong before God and men and justify it. You cannot be that third pastor in the room saying, well, my problem is gossip. I like talking about your sins. Don't do it, my friend, because you're sinning with your tongue. And sin must be taken seriously. You know, let me go back to this. And I say this, but when God tells us to love each other, that's no easy task. Because I think my sin is okay, and I don't think that your sin is okay. And that's where the problems begin. But if I would spend time knowing that when I do wrong, it's wrong, I'll be more merciful with you, and we will have, as my daily show is on YouTube, we will have an oasis. Again, I tell you, I was looking forward to being here this morning. I really was. We had a good time singing to the Lord. Musicians are really good. There's one guy who plays two instruments. He really, and sings. He amazes me. <laughs> No, I mean, you know, you, and you can sense, let me say something, you know, you can sense as a musician, you can hear the voices worshiping in song, singing, singing, you hear it. Ah, oh, it's a great feeling. I've played in clubs. I've played in places where the people are singing to the music I was playing, they're drunk. Or they don't like the tune, play this. Well, we don't play that. But to love one another is a difficult task. Let me say this again. I'm very serious about this. Because it's in your nature and mine to say, I'm righteous, you're not. Now change that around. 
and become the lowest of the low. And then you'll be invited to the higher seats by the Lord. How do you get victory over sin? Here's a mouse that was perhaps accidentally or purposely put into a tank with a snake, which is how they eat, if you don't know, as pets. And the mouse did not know what to do, so he buried himself underneath all of the, uh, what do you call that stuff you put in those tanks there? He buried himself thinking that this would keep him from the snake. Well, the mouse did not know. You know what spared him? Somebody reached in and took him out. See, we didn't save ourselves. When I was sitting on the side of my bed many, many long years ago, weeping and crying and depressed and not knowing what was wrong with me, the world, and all of this, it was Christ that reached down and took me out of the snake pit. And he said, come follow me. And for me, and I know I speak for you, we were said gladly. But are you following Christ? Are you following the Christ of the Bible? That's how we get victory over sin. I'm not going to read the entire chapter of 6 if you're still there with me. But look at verse 11 if you are. Romans 6, 11 says, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, not just the big sins, but everything that comes into your mind. The Holy Spirit, he brings things to your mind. Well, my conscience is telling me it's wrong. I already know it's wrong. And the Holy Spirit doesn't say to me every single time, thousands of times, change. I already know. I have to change that. Because I've reached a point where I'm not asking God, change me, but not yet. Change me, but not all. Just change me. And whatever the price is, the price is. Because in the end, as Paul said, I am persuaded that the sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared with the glories that shall be revealed in us. That's a good thought for the day, you know. Again, I'm not going to have you raise your hand because it's going to be everybody's hand. How many are feeling stressed? How many got problems? It's everybody. But think of what the scripture says and John 17, 17, sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. We got something coming that is so glorious. It's beyond our imagination and the Bible doesn't even spell it all out. I know one thing, when we see Jesus, we will forget everything. Amen. We will say, where were you when I needed you? You've read the story of footprints? It's a great story. Somebody has a dream and there's Jesus' footprints and their footprints. But every time in a troubled part of their life, there's only one set of footprints. It's a great poem or a story. And so they're saying, Lord, every time I was in trouble, you left me alone. And he said, I didn't leave you alone. Those were the moments I carried you. When my children were young, it was common for them to fall asleep on the couch or on the floor or whatever. And what you do is you go and you pick them up. Unless they're like 18. And you go and you pick them up and you put them in the bed. And they, if they're old enough, they said, oh, I must have fell asleep, you know, in the living room or on the couch. And when you die, you will be in one room. And when you wake up, you'll be in another room. And the last thing on your mind is to say, God, where were you when I needed you? You're going to be able to say, my God, my Lord and my God. The glory that shall be revealed in us. My Lord and my God. But will he say to you, well done. I don't want to just be received by the Lord, though obviously I do. I don't want him to say, welcome. I want him to, and I like handshakes more than I do hugs. I, I do hugs, I guess, but I like handshakes. I want Jesus to say, well done. 
You stuck it out in the town where nobody wanted to go. You stuck it out when everything looked like it was going to fail. And you never gave up. And you fought a good fight. You fought a good fight. And you kept the faith. And you never let it go. That's what I want to hear. And that's what you want to hear. Don't make excuses for your life. It's your moral choice. Not only does the Bible say it, but there's a score of psychologists and psychiatrists are going to say, you chose this life. You chose it. I'll finish with this. My message today is victory over sin. Verse 11 says, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's both at the same time. Dead men tell no tales. Dead women don't tell them either. Dead men aren't alcoholics. Dead men are and you just go on that. And we have been included in the death of Christ. When Christ died on the cross, since we are in Christ, we also died. Called now to a life of sanctification and holiness because we belong to him. A royal priesthood, chosen nation. But many years ago, I read a book which I wish I still had. I don't know what happened to it. I may have lent it to somebody and uh, never got it back. Or in the years, maybe it just got lost. I don't know. You can't buy it anymore. Well, you can't buy it cheaply. There's copies out there, but... And it was written, it's the autobiography of Floyd Patterson. He was the first to win the heavyweight championship twice. He was the first, until Mike Tyson came along, the youngest to win the heavyweight championship. The accolade that they use over him is the gentleman boxer. He was very subdued, very quiet. He grew up, yeah, in a bad situation and very poor and different things. He was haunted most of his life by fear and anxiety, depression, which is not uncommon for people in general. But he wrote a book with an engaging title, Victory Over Myself. It's his autobiography of how he was overcoming, how he won the heavyweight championship, won it back, and so on. You know, one of his quotes, and I have to read it to you, Patterson said, it's easy to do anything in victory. It's in defeat that a man reveals himself. That's a great statement. When you're feeling good, God is good. Everything's going great. God is great. But let me tell you something. It gets very, very difficult to sing a song when in your head everything that's going wrong, all the hurts, all the sorrow, all the deep scars from the past are coming back to your mind while you're trying to sing, how great is our God. But that's when I believe God takes that song and is truly glorified. Because as Patterson said, it's easy for anyone to be happy or easy to do things when you're in victory, but you're really tested when you're in a defeat. And you come from that defeat, and you raise yourself up in the name of Jesus Christ. And walk the walk, instead of just talking the talk. Anyway, victory over myself, I think, is a good thought to leave you with, because what you need is the same as every person who's ever come to Christ, is a victory over yourself. I want you to ask yourself, are you that third person in the pastor's room there? One has a gambling problem, the other has another problem, and he's got that problem, and he's got that problem, but you like to tell everybody's problems because you're so righteous and holy? Think again, you're not. Because the book says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's what I want to leave you with. Get the victory over yourself. If you heard me lose my temper, and that was like my number one fault. And I had plenty, but that was at the top of the list there. You can't keep justifying it. 
We can't keep talking about all these different things when God says, no, it's a work of the flesh. And then just go down the list. Look at Galatians chapter 5. Read it. Read that list. I want to encourage you today to get a victory over yourself, which is a victory over sin. And when you are to love the brethren, you'll be able to do it with more compassion. Because if you have no sin, start throwing stones. Start throwing the stones. Do it. What you're going to find out, those stones are going to land on you. Read Romans chapter 6. Better memorize it. Then go on to Romans chapter 8. And better than reading it, memorize it. It shows you how to get victory over sin. But chiefly it's found in this. We are now dead to sin. We're no longer proud of what we used to be. The one time we were the high cogalorum, you know, of the town. Now we say, I'm ashamed of that. We get victory by accounting that we are dead now to sin and alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I want you just to think about how Christ reached down when you were trying to bury yourself in the debris or sawdust of your uh, little cage. And the snake was, the Satan, the snake is a serpent. And Satan was going to gobble you up, take you where he's going to be in the lake of fire. And there was no way for you to get out. There's no club, there's no organization. And Christ reached down and he took you out. Now he says, now live a new life. And don't go back into the cage. Like a dog, don't go back. Dogs vomit and then they lick it all up. I know I've seen it enough times with all the dogs I've had. When you go back to sinning against God, that's exactly what you're doing. So don't. Let's push forward in this hour of history. Make sure your conscience is clean by the blood of Christ. Don't ever be ashamed of Christ. People, let them talk. Most of them don't amount to much anyway. So Father, we just come before you today in Jesus' mighty name. Let us not be the one who says, well, I don't think what I did was wrong, when it's clearly in the book that it is. Help us, God. And help us to believe what you have said, that you made us in Christ to be dead indeed unto sin, not just the big ones, but all the trifles, all the small ones, all those little foxes. The things that come out of our mouth, the thoughts we permit to germinate in the mind. Help us today to count ourselves dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Help us, God, to understand and to live it. We give you praise, O God. We give you glory. We give you honor, as I always say, because you are great and greatly to be praised. While your head is bowed, take a look at yourself one more time. It's so easy to judge other people. I know, because I've done it. And excuse yourself. That's even easier than judging other people. Well, you know, I, all have sinned. And we're all called to the same life, a holy life. We're all called to put it away or put sin away. So only you know today what God is speaking to your heart. You know, over the years, and it's been many years, as you know, how often I'll hear somebody say, man, you were talking right to me today. Well, it's not me. I don't even premeditate my sermons. It may seem that way because I've got some quotations down on paper, but most of what I do is extempore. It's the years of study. It's just being led by the Holy Spirit. It's not me speaking to you as much as it's God speaking to you this morning, that we can give a good report to Christ. And don't be uh, fooled by the people with Bibles in their hands that come to you saying, Hi, I'm a Christian. Well, okay. Stay neutral. Don't judge them. But watch. In any case, you don't have to do too much watching, but you've got to watch for yourself. Just keep going forward. I want to take a moment to give thanks to God today. Do you realize what God did when he took you out of the mouth of the snake? Man alive. 
<laughs> Man alive, he took us out of the mouth of the snake. In Colossians, it says, I'm just using the metaphor, he took us right out of the whole kingdom and put us in his kingdom. Now we're free. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And read that eighth chapter of John. It's all about stopping to sin in Jesus' name. Read it. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. That's you. That's me. So we have a lot to be grateful for. We just came a few days ago from Thanksgiving. As Christians, every day is Thanksgiving. Amen. Every day is Thanksgiving. So Lord, we thank you this morning. You told us in the book that our prayers and our supplications should be mingled with Thanksgiving. So we give you thanks. We thank you for reaching into the cage and taking us out of the mouth of the dragon, the lion, or I should say the snake, Satan. And you put us into your kingdom, where now we will live forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. But you told us, don't look back and don't go back. And then you said, remember Lot's wife. Everyone today, as you're giving thanks, remember Lot's wife. She almost made it. The children of Israel that left Egypt almost made it, but they didn't. We want to finish well. We want to finish well. They call us holy rollers, and what they say is true. But if they knew what we were rolling about, they'd be rolling too. God, we thank you. Help the Time for Truth Ministries, again, all that are watching, whosoever will, to love you with all the heart, all the soul, all the mind, all the strength, every talent, every gift, everything be given to you, and then cause us to love one another. Amen. The greater of the two, as far as challenge is concerned. First is the greatest. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you for our time together. I ask you, God, now to bless my friends, some that will be staying for a little refreshments afterwards, as we usually do, and some will be going home. Give them safe traveling mercies and remind us of these things all through the week. I pray that in Jesus' mighty name. Amen? Amen. And amen.